No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Dr. Jonathan Galbert describes some of the most impactful injuries in sports history. We actually look at the unintended consequences of these injuries and how they have affected society as a whole. Because the story didn't stop with the injury, the story didn't stop with the sport. Whether it's the courtroom, whether it's the rule books, you know, even epidemics of youth sports injuries. Plus, Andrew Marinus explains why the United States should have never participated in the 1936 Summer Olympics. The more that I really realized what a propaganda effort this was, the clearer it became to me that we shouldn't have been there. And it's impossible to say what that effect would have had on Hitler, but I think it would have put a little bit more focus on the acts that were already taking place in Nazi Germany, and who knows how that might have changed things. Also, Mark Bond advocates for his father, Maxi to be elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think he was a combination of really smart, a really good football sense, and being a pretty darn good athlete. I coached an all-star game with Johnny Unitas and sat down and talked with him and he talked about my father and you know how difficult it was to play against him. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. He's been covering sports as a newspaper man for nearly 70 years and he is still at it, one of the legendary figures in the annals of sports journalism, sports writing, sports reporting. And he was just enshrined in his 16th Hall of Fame. In some ways, this might be the most meaningful of them all, the New Jersey Hall of Fame, because he is the quintessential, the consummate Garden Stater. It is a pleasure to welcome back to the sporting life, the one, the only, Jerry Eisenberg. Well, it's very kind of you. You understated it a little bit, but that's very kind. <laughs> would you would you like me to pile it on some more, Jerry? No, would, no, would that no. make come you on, happy. I, come on, I know the truth about it. Let it go. Now, 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 Jerry. In all seriousness, in the New Jersey Hall of Fame—that's uh, a big deal. You know, you're a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, for instance, I happen to know that James J. Braddock, who was only the heavyweight champion of the world, is yeah. not in the New Jersey Hall of Fame, but you are now a member of the Hall of Fame along with. Frank Sinatra and Buzz Aldrin and all yeah. the other greats. Uh, what did this honor mean to you after having been honored in so many different ways by so many different organizations? Well, I'll tell you, they asked me to write a piece in the paper, which I did a long piece about what it means to me. And I remarked that my first memory of New Jersey uh, was in Beth Israel Hospital on September 10th, 1930. A doctor with very cold hands. Beth Israel, Newark. Yes, I was there just uh, a few months ago for Matt Millen. That's where he got his heart transplant. Well, okay. So that uh, doctor with very cold hands turned me upside down, whacked me on the ass and said, you're in New Jersey, kid, learn to survive. (laughs) Best advice I ever got. (laughs) I'm sorry. I almost stepped on the punchline, Jerry, but not quite. I apologize. Uh, I'm used to that. We've been doing this for a long time. I keep stepping on the punchlines. Yeah, that's all right. As long as you don't trip. (laughs) Now, and I should say, and I don't want to embarrass you here, but you know, your career um, is a testament not only to your uh, literary sensibility, your journalistic instincts, um, your unerring sense of fairness and what really matters. Um, 
but also just to your your determination to to keep doing it when when everybody else pretty much from your generation either uh um you know is no longer with us i hate to right. say or or retired what keeps you going still writing what what the are you now fuel in the world venom <laughs> And You're not a venomous for, person, yes. Jerry. Oh, yeah. You don't know me. You're very nice, Jerry. Jeremy. You haven't seen the evil side of me. But I will tell you this. I am so angry about the destruction of the English language. Oh, because as I, I used to teach at, at Rutgers in Newark. I wouldn't teach at the other place. And also at the new school. Wait, wait. Uh, what do you have, what have you got against the Piscataway campus or the New Brunswick campus? Uh, I don't understand. They're, they're, they're the, uh, they, they are the self-built upper crust. Okay. The Newark campus, when I went to school, was not a campus. I, I went to school in an abandoned razor bra- uh, uh, brewery, hmm. and uh, there was no campus. It was, Rutgers had taken Newark University over like four years earlier, and I got the best education I could. Everybody in school had a job. I worked 40 hours a week at night in a chemical plant for three years ago. Um, you got to remember, I was born in 1930. And in those days, if you were born in 1930, and your father said, you're going to college, you went. Of course, he didn't give me two quarters, but I had to go. Right. So that was the deal there. But I, 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 I was going to say, I used to tell my students, you know, every Day. English is the greatest language in the world. They talk about the lyrical uh, qualities of Italian. They talk about Spanish with the gestures and stuff like that, and French with the subdued and, and, and inferences. English is the best language in the world. And I told them, every day, you kids leave it torn and battled and bleeding on the battlefield, and the next day they get up to fight again. <laughs> and that's one of my, one of my real... I'm tired of people saying, well, you know, you use biblical references. I don't know what they are. Well, they need to get religion or get a dictionary, one or the other. I'm f- you. I'm not going to, you know. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to have to bleep that. Yeah, so it's on you and not me. No, it's, I, it's I'm me. Not, you can yeah, do whatever you're you want. You're 89. You can do whatever you want. We're speaking with the one and only Jerry Eisenberg, the longtime, and I mean longtime sports <laughs> columnist, the star ledger of Newark. Uh, you know, those really in the know would never say the Newark star ledger. It's the star ledger it. of Newark. Uh, and Jerry, when I think of the the scope, the arc of your career, it, it's not just about that appreciation and mastery of the English language, but it is about that, that um, instinct for the big story for um, being ahead of the curve, for not being a follower, uh, whether you know we're talking about um, breaking the color line in the American League, the way uh, you know you covered your friend Larry Doby. Uh, obviously, you were still in college when he broke the color line in 1948 in the American I, League. I, I was, uh, uh, I was, yes, but I was working for the paper then too. Now, you talked about your appreciation of the English language, um, and I know that much of it came from one of your first bosses, the legendary Stanley Woodward, who had been at the Herald Tribune and then at the Star-Ledger. When I was starting off in this business, my dad gave me Sports Page, Woodward's book. You got the real thing, the man in person. What kind of an influence did he have on you? Everything. Everything. I'll tell you something. He also went back to the Tribune in, you know, in Triumph, right. and he took me with him from Newark for three years. And then I left and went home. But I, I will tell you, the greatest experience of my life, here's a guy, a sports editor, 
who had seven years from four and three of Latin and Greek in college, who played football when he was legally blind for four years. And I asked him one day, Stanley, you could hardly see the guy in front of you those years. He got, he got an operation and somewhat healed. And I said, yeah, how did you survive? He said, oh, I got a softball catcher's mask, put electrician tape all around it, and wore it. I said, geez, a guy could break his hand on that. He said, yeah, couldn't he? That was my Stanley. <laughs> Stanley Woodward once called me home from my first spring training. I was so friggin' important. And, oh, I'm going to go to spring training. And my dad, a minor league ball player, I was going to cover the Giants where he never got. And, and he was happy, and I was happy, and I got out there. I was out there three days, the phone rings. He said, uh, I want to see you the day after tomorrow in my office. I said, well, I'm not done yet. He said, you're done if you don't come in. <laughs> so I didn't know what the hell I did. I flew in. He walked in. He, he sat down. He said, all right, now, who's going to play third base, for, uh, first base for the Giants? Third base, second base. I'm sorry, I got it right now. Who's going to play second base? I said, well, we don't know this. Seven candidates. It's a really good question. He said, I know the question. I'm asking you for the answer. And I said, well, I don't know yet. There's spring trains like that. He said, listen. I don't give a damn that the Giants are training within nine miles of the Lost Dutchman's mine. I don't give a damn about the sunset in the, in the desert. Stop writing that crap. Don't you, you just go sit on a desk, and I'll tell you when I think you're able to write again. He kept me there for three months. I never forgot it. And then, I, I, you know, I just surrendered. And then one day, I came into work, and he said to me, how do you like a new assignment? I said, what new assignment? He said, well, uh, I, I like uh, the fact that I have given you college basketball. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, go look at it. So I look at that. We used to be posting all the time. And I said, wow. I said, you know, I can't thank you enough, saying, but I do have a question. He said, what's your question? Well, you didn't say, all you say is college basketball. You don't say what they want me to do or whatever. He said, look, I hire people because I think they will know what to do. Hmm. And if they can't know what to do, then I get rid of them. Now, if you don't like it, oh, no, Stanley, I'll be glad to do it. Uh, he said, let me tell you something going in so you don't ask this question again. I have great contempt for any game where grown men wear short pants and are not allowed to hit each other. Now you go cover basketball. <laughs> Jerry, it's been good catching up. Thank you so much for joining us again here in The Sporting Life. Yeah, and I just want to say one quick sentence. I think about your dad all the time, and I know he's smiling, and I hope my dad's smiling at me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And this week, as there often is in the world of sports, we've heard a lot of talk about injuries, their significance, their severity, and we have an expert joining us now to talk about sports injuries and the way in which treatment of sports injuries has actually changed the way that medicine is practiced. We welcome to the show Dr. Jonathan Gelber. His new book is Tiger Woods' Back and Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transform Careers, Sports, and Society. Dr. Gelber, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on. When you say... Sports injuries and tragedies that have transformed society. What do you mean? Each story in this book focuses on a different athlete, and some of the athletes are 
Tiger Woods, Tommy John, Len Bias, Hank Gathers, Dooku Kim, Lyle Alzado, Dale Earnhardt. So each of these athletes that we know the stories of the athletes. There was either an injury or a tragedy that affected their life, not only affected their life, but also affected the sport. And then where our, this book differs from other books that have looked at these stories before is that we actually look at the unintended consequences of these injuries or these tragedies and how they have affected society as a whole, because the story didn't stop with the injury, the story didn't stop with the sport. Each one of these actually affects society as a whole, whether it's the courtroom, whether it's HIV testing, whether it's you know the, the rule books, you know, even epidemics of youth sports injuries, a lot of these can all be traced back to these very specific instances of sports injuries or tragedies. And, uh, of course, let, let's talk about a few of them. Uh, you, you mentioned Magic Johnson, people who are old enough to have been paying attention in 1991. He made that announcement that he was HIV positive, And at that point, we are less than a decade into the AIDS crisis. We assumed that it was a death sentence for Magic Johnson. And, of course, here we are now, 28 years later, and he seems to be doing very well. How did the Magic Johnson story change the way we perceive those who have uh, been infected uh, with HIV and the way that the disease was treated? So at the time, a lot of the HIV clinics were recording testing rates for different demographic groups. And they were able to look at when he made his announcement and look at the testing rates before and after his announcement. And there's an actual effect. There's a real magic effect. When he makes his announcement, testing rates of all different demographics go up. But then a lot of them quickly went back down. And the only one that actually persisted for a longer period of time was for those who are white, male, heterosexual, and under the age of 40, which if you look for the risk of HIV, that was actually the least likely group to have HIV. The group that still today has one of the highest rates of HIV risk and infection is the African-American female. And so while Magic's celebrity effect was real, it was actually his wife, Cookie, whose face and voice were probably what we needed to focus on. So while the Magic effect was real and it was good, it was actually the Cookie Johnson effect that I think we should have focused more on back then. Just to um, unpack that a little bit, uh, you know, Cookie was not HIV positive. So how did that element of the story affect the way that you know people decided to get treated or not treated, tested or not tested? Yeah, I mean, that, that, the, the Cookie Johnson story was, is a real emotional story. So Magic makes his announcement and his new wife is also pregnant with their child. Mm-hmm. So not only does Magic have to worry about him, but now he has to worry about his wife and his unborn child being infected. And so it took a little while to get the test results back. And Fortunately, neither the wife nor the child were infected, which that's a great story. And just like magic being around today is a great story, but it's also a double-edged sword because people look around and they see magic and they see someone who has HIV but doesn't have the AIDS syndrome and they think, well, that could be everybody. And that's not always the case. And so his his face, his beaming, smiling face is almost a double-edged sword. It raises awareness, but it also makes people less worried about contracting the disease. And a lot of those studies where there were changes in attitudes following Magic's announcement didn't always necessarily translate into changes in risky behavior. How did Tiger Woods's back situation have a larger impact? 
so Tiger's story is sort of twofold. So there's the, his back itself, and the difference about his back versus his other injuries, like his knee, like his Achilles, is he's able to power through those before. So he could just basically grimace, get through the pain, get the ball down the fairway, and deal with the pain after he shot the ball. With the back, he wasn't even able to start his swing. And so he had multiple surgeries. He even had a fusion at a level, which decreases some of the rotation. So he's not able to turn his back as far to generate as much momentum. And he's also now stressing those bone joints above and below the fusion. So I think what Tiger was saying, I, I can exactly see why that's an issue, because I don't think he's going to have the longevity to play as much as he did, as many tournaments as he did in the past. I think he needs to be more selective. We've seen he can do it when we saw the Masters, and that was a great, great story in his, his book there. But I think he's got to be more selective. He can't play as many tournaments because there's just only so much wear and tear his back can have. And so that's one story. But the society story is actually the pain medicine story. So Tiger needed pain medicine to get through his knee injury. He needed pain medicine to get through his back injury. And not only did he need pain medicine, but he was also combining that with Xanax, or benzodiazepines. And that combination is actually quite deadly. And we all know we have an opioid epidemic. But just as equally dangerous is the combination of those opioids with the benzodiazepines. Mm. And so when, Mad, uh, when Tiger was found on the side of the road in Jupiter, Florida by the police, two of the four substances in his blood were the pain medicine and the benzos. And having professional athletes addicted to pain medicine is a story we don't talk about. There's a, a study we talk, I talk about in the book where they went through the NFL players directory and basically called and surveyed retired NFL players. And it was shocking how many of them were addicted to pain medicine that started just trying to get through their careers in the NFL. Well, there are some fascinating uh, essays in here, really interesting connections that uh, have not been made before. Let me put it that way. And the book is Tiger Woods' Back and Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transform Careers, Sports, and Society. The author is Dr. Jonathan Gelber. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Dr. Gelber. Thank you so much for for being with us and for writing this book. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Everybody knows about the original dream team, the 1992 American Olympic basketball team that took the world by storm. It was the first time the pros had been allowed to compete. A lot of people remember the 1984 team, which was led by Michael Jordan and coached by Bob Knight. A lot of people remember what happened in 1972 when the U.S. was robbed in the final seconds, losing the gold medal to the Soviet Union. But less people Fewer people, I should say, are familiar with the story of the first Olympic basketball tournament and the first team to win the gold at the Olympics. That story is told in a new book by Andrew Marinus, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. It's a pleasure to have Andrew join us. Andrew, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me back on, Jeremy. This book, uh, which is a great achievement about a story, as I said, that nobody's really um, given this kind of treatment to before. What, why did you want to? I mean, you're a basketball guy. Why? What brought you to this story? Yeah, I am a basketball guy, and actually it was a, a basketball-related trip that sort of exposed me to this story. I was at the University of Kansas 
to speak about my last book, which was uh, a biography of Perry Wallace, who was the first African-American basketball player in the SEC. And I had never been to Allen Fieldhouse before. And so while I was in Lawrence, Kansas, I, I made a detour over there. And I don't know if you've been there, but attached to the Fieldhouse, they have um, a building called the DeBruce Center that has the original rules of basketball under glass, like you might see the Constitution under glass in D.C., Right, So I saw um, Naismith's original rules of basketball because he had later become the athletic director and the first basketball coach at Kansas. And right next to it was a picture of Naismith with a Japanese player from the 1930s. And the the man giving me a tour mentioned, uh, did you know that the inventor of basketball got to see his invention make its Olympic debut at the Olympics? And I had never heard that before. And I said, well, which Olympics was that? And when he said it was the 36 Olympics in Berlin... Um, I thought that was uh, too good of a story not to be told. You know, the invention or the international debut of this, such an incredible sport at such a controversial Olympics. Um, and what I'm trying to do with my books now is to write sports and, and social justice related stories um, for middle school and high school kids and adults. And I thought that that combination certainly existed within this story. It's a story of that first basketball tournament. Um First time basketball was played at the Olympics. Hadn't been played in 1932 in Los Angeles, even though the games were taking place in the U.S., the birthplace of basketball. But the Germans, Carl Dean, put them on the program. How did that happen? Well, it was uh, Fog Allen, um, as coach at Kansas, who really was the person that envisioned what we consider the modern game of basketball. You know, Naismith had invented it primarily as just a form of exercise and recreation. That was his real interest in the sport. But uh, Fog Allen is responsible essentially for the formation of the NCAA tournament and was also um, looking for ways to grow this game internationally. And so he was pitching international uh, Olympic and basketball officials for years. And he, he thought he would be successful in 32 in L.A., as you mentioned, because it was taking place here in the birthplace of basketball. But he had once coached a German exchange student named Fritz Sawicki, at a basketball clinic at Springfield College in Massachusetts. And Sawicki returned to Germany where he became um, an official with the Hitler Youth. And uh, Allen was lobbying Sawicki and Carl Diem and also some Japanese officials um, on having basketball included in the 36 Olympics in Germany. Um, and so it's a bit of an uncomfortable truth to think about the fact that it was the Nazis who, who brought us this game at the Olympic level, but Allen had been working on it for years and he was finally successful in convincing the Germans. And I, I think a big reason for that, and you know, also they played a baseball exhibition game, not a medal sport, but an exhibition game at the Olympic stadium. And I think the, the Germans were conscious of the boycott effort that was pretty considerable in the United States at that time and really wanted uh, more than anything for the U S to participate. And I think they, threw a couple bones our way by including that baseball exhibition and by including basketball in the Olympics. 110,000 people seeing that baseball game, the biggest crowd, as you write, that had ever seen a baseball game up to that point in time. And, you know, I wrote a book about uh, Jesse Owens in the 36 Olympics, and I saw those pictures of the 36 Olympic basketball tournament. The thing that, of course, is most striking to anybody who sees those pictures for the first time is that they're playing outdoors. <laughs> That's right. Uh, on clay tennis courts, essentially. Uh, how, how did that? How did that affect the caliber of play? Well, it affected it tremendously. Of course, the the, the Germans had promised that it would be a 
you know, a brilliant tournament under the open air, <laughs> and it turned out to rain. Uh, monsoon rain started the day before the uh, gold medal and the bronze medal games, and so those games were complete farces. Um, it became a big soupy mess in these clay tennis courts. Players couldn't dribble the basketball or would just get stuck and plop in the mud. Um, reading the articles from New York Times and other papers, you know, it, it was an embarrassment uh, for the sport, even the way it was played at, at that time. People slipping and sliding all over the place. Um, USB Canada 19-8 to to win the first uh, Olympic gold medal under those circumstances. It was a joke of a, of a final. We're speaking with Andrew Marinus about his new book, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. And, and Andrew, you know, when you write about the games of the 11th Olympiad, of course, uh, so much is about the backdrop. And you mentioned the boycott efforts in the U.S., the boycott effort narrowly defeated uh, by Avery Brundage, who ran the American Olympic Committee at the time, uh, Jeremiah T. Mahoney, who ran the Amateur Athletic Union, his his bitter foe, uh, that... Um, that effort was narrowly defeated uh, in in the um, days leading up to the games, months leading up to both the winter and the summer games in Germany. When you write about this subject, you you have to come back, of course, to what was going on in Germany at the time, and you you do that in the book. You write a lot about how the situation had changed in the three years since uh, Adolf Hitler had come to power. And you also have to grapple with the question of whether or not participation was the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, Jesse Owens would emerge as the star of the games. The African-American contingent was enormously successful. But ultimately, writing this book and researching this book as thoroughly as you did, what conclusion did you draw about whether or not the U.S. should have been there? I think that's sort of the fundamental question that I've been anticipating would be asked whenever I go talk about this. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I know in your book, you write that if if not for the anti-Semitism of Avery Brundage, we wouldn't have had this magical moment with Jesse Owens at those Olympics. We probably would have boycotted, right? Um, and yet, I think you also point out in your book, it's not as if Jesse Owens, by proving the 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 myth of Aryan supremacy, really, what did that change? You know, we still had six million uh, Jews murdered. We still had World War II. We still had Jesse Owens return to the United States where he wasn't treated as an equal person. So I, I think my answer will be that we should not have participated in those Olympics. Uh, it's maybe easy to say in hindsight, but there there was a considerable segment of the U.S. public that even in 1933, 34, 35, leading up to the Olympics, was opposed to this idea, how can you have an international event built around these concepts of sportsmanship and fair play taking place in this fascist state of, of Nazi Germany? Um, the more that I learned about Brundage's own anti-Semitism, the, the, the trip that he, supposed fact-finding trip that he took to Berlin, to see if, you know, would this be an appropriate place to play where he's accompanied by Nazi hosts the entire time and he's palling around with these guys and the level of propaganda that he was encouraging in the United States, writing letters to German Olympic officials and to actual Nazis asking them to help him with PR campaign in the U.S. to influence um, public opinion. Well, meanwhile, he's calling opponents of the um, Nazi regime un-American um, the more that I really realized what a propaganda effort this was, the clearer it became to me that um, 
we shouldn't have been there. And I, and I don't know that it really would have, um, it's impossible to say what that effect would have had on, on Hitler, but I think it would have indicated more of an awareness um, internationally uh, of what was happening there at the time and maybe put a little bit more um, of a focus on the, the acts that were already taking place in Nazi Germany. And who knows how that might have changed things. But um, no, I don't think we should have gone. What, what, do you, what was your final answer on that? The same as yours, for what it's worth. Uh, the same conclusion that uh, while there were, were these transcendent performances um, and the world wouldn't know who Jesse Owens is today, of course, if we had not participated because there would be no games in 40 or 44 and uh, and he would have been too old by 48. Uh, that that wasn't good enough, and the games did achieve for the Germans uh, what they'd hoped they would achieve, which is this uh, huge public relations platform, which uh, at the time most people accepted as an indication of the less-than-malevolent intentions of the Third Reich, and we shouldn't have been taking part. Yeah, and that's the, the reason why the book is called Games of Deception, really sort of getting that fact that the whole this whole scene there was essentially a, a facade and a movie set to try to fool the world. And they were, like you said, largely successful in doing that. Well, it's a great book, uh, as you said, intended uh, not only for young adults, but for adults as well. It's Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. It is a primer as well on the first 45 years of the game of basketball since it's uh, – Creation by James Naismith in 1891 at Springfield College. Another tremendous book from Andrew Marinus. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Part of the fun of Halls of Fame is talking about who should be in who shouldn't be in? And anyone who's been listening to this show over the last several years knows that for a long time, we championed the campaign of Jerry Kramer to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which eventually happened two years ago after many years of injustice, not seeing Kramer enshrined in Canton. We're joined now by Mark Bond. His father, Maxie Bond, was a nine-time Pro Bowler. A seven-time All-Pro, two times first team, five times second team. And there is an argument to be made that Maxie Bond, who was a terrific linebacker in the NFL in the 1960s for the Eagles and for the Redskins and the Rams, is one of the most overlooked players presently not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Mark, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jeremy. Glad to be here. I don't believe there is anyone uh, with more Pro Bowl appearances who is not in the Hall of Fame. I think there's only one other nine-time Pro Bowler who isn't in the Hall of Fame. Why, why do you think your father, Maxie, uh, who was also uh, a successful coach in the NFL as a coordinator, a successful college head coach, why do you think he hasn't been selected? Uh, that's a tough question, Jeremy. Um yeah, and I, I don't know that there's a, you know, a black and white definitive answer. Um, I think probably playing in Philadelphia for six years and then in L.A. for five years, uh, you know, two sides of the country, two different types of areas, two different markets, two different worlds, um, probably wasn't a, a help. Um, you know, and I, he was never a, uh, a me, me, 
you know, self-promoter type of a guy. Um, you know, so I, 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 I don't know the answer. I, it, 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 you know, I've, I've looked at some things and done some research and all things would seemingly indicate that he certainly has the qualifications to, uh, have been inducted. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Maxi Bond is now 81 years old. He won an NFL title as a rookie with the Eagles. He's in the Eagles Hall of Fame. He was a big name coming out of Georgia Tech, an All-American there in 1959. And as I said, seven times an All-Pro at a time when there was a lot of great linebacking depth, some legends playing the position in the NFL, and he was still a nine-time Pro Bowler, including... Seven years in a row. I mean, nine out of 10 years, 60 through 69, dominating a decade. How does your dad feel now about and how has he felt about being overlooked? You know, I don't I don't know that he really has ever conveyed how he actually truly feels. I mean, I think it hurts a little bit, but, you know, it's never been something that he really went out and saw it or really I don't think he spent a great deal of time thinking about it. If it was going to happen, great. If it didn't, then, you know, he certainly wasn't going to jump up and down. Um, but I, I do think there's a little something there where you look at some of the other people that maybe have gotten in over the years and you compare and you look at what he did over the course of his career, and it kind of makes you shake your head a little bit. So I got to think deep down, he kind of says, golly, you know, what, what, why not? Um, but I don't, I honestly don't think it was something that ever really ate at him too much. We're speaking to Mark Bond about his father, Maxie Bond, one of the great linebackers of the NFL in his or any era. And I should say we've known each other for a long time. I've known Maxie Bond for a long time. He was the head coach at Cornell University, won an Ivy League title there um, in 1988. I happened to be uh, a student reporter at the Cornell Sun at that time. Um, he's not in the Football Hall of Fame, as we've been discussing, but there are certainly many people beyond the Bond family and myself who feel that he should be one of the reasons um, he might not be in there is his career really was split up in a number of different cities, didn't build as strong a base as he might have if he had played in one place for his whole career or for the vast majority of his career. To those who are too young to have seen your father play when he was at his best, and I know you were very young too, um, but you've seen the film, what kind of a player was he? Jeremy, I, I think you'd have to, you know, he, he combined really good athleticism. He wasn't, he wasn't the biggest guy. He wasn't the strongest, you know, probably wasn't the fastest, although he was pretty fast. I think he combined, a, you know, a, a, an unbelievable knack of, you know, football knowledge with, you know, being a really good athlete. And I think that combination you know, really came through the latter years when he was with the Rams and, uh, you know, was in the George Allen system. Um, you know, spoken with different people and, you know, I've heard some some wonderful things from Hall of Famers, brothers of Hall of Famers who, you know, played with and against my father. And, you know, going back over the years, you know, 
I coached an all-star game with, you know, Johnny Unitas and sat down and talked with him for hours. And he talked about my father and, you know, how difficult it was to play against him. Um, you know, I, I think he was a, a combination of being really smart, a really good football sense, and being a pretty darn good athlete. Um, you know, and he, and he made that work. Um, so it, it's kind of, uh, you know, there's not one single factor, but I think he was a pretty good combination of a lot of different things. We've been speaking with Mark Bond about his father, Maxie Bond, legendary linebacker from the 1960s in the National Football League. He was also a defensive coordinator in the NFL, frequently a candidate for head coaching positions, a successful head coach at Cornell University in the Ivy League, which isn't as easy as many people think it was. George Seifert, was he? He was like 2-16 and 16 at Cornell, but Maxie won an Ivy League title. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your dad. Uh, we agree that he is worthy of enshrinement. Jeremy, I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.